Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach into the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today I want to welcome Dr. Mark Dever to the podcast. Dr. Dever serves as a senior pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He's also the president of Nine Marks Ministries. Mark, welcome to Preaching and Preachers. Jason, good to be with you. Great yeah. name for a show. Isn't it, though? Yes. Uh, Preaching and Preachers, that's us. Look, it's been so good to have you on campus yesterday and today with the Nine Marks Conference here, and uh, thankful for the partnership, for your concern over the past several decades for local church and your commitment to uh, strengthening the local church and equipping pastors. So thank you for what you do. Uh, as you know, you're amongst friends here. It's been a delightful two days, and uh, delighted to have you in the studio here for a few minutes. Always good to be with you and to be at Midwestern. Yeah. Hey, tell us before we hop into the meat of the conversation, just a brief update on you, Capitol Hill, family, what's going on in your life? What uh, should we be encouraged by? What can we pray for you about? Thanks, ma'am. Um, the Devers are knowing God's grace. My wife uh, had uh, thyroid cancer a number of years ago. She wrote a book about it, um, which you can find that there are um, the symptoms that come from having had it. And so you pray for Connie to persevere well. Um, and for me to know how to love her well. Our church is going well. We've just, at, at, as of this recording, we've just planted a new congregation out in Chevrolet, Maryland, where a number of uh, our elders have gone out to help with that, about 60 or 70 folks, and uh, there are 60 or 70 kids. I'm preaching the installation of the new pastor there two Sundays from now, so I'm excited about that. Uh, we have some good baptisms coming up. Church continues to grow, be in good health. Yeah, we're excited. Yeah. And so Nine Marks Ministries now, roughly 20 years? 20 years uh, this month, actually. And just give us old. a brief sense of kind of the scope of the work here on an annual basis, conferences, literature. Uh, yeah, Ryan Townsend is the executive director. He's better at answering that than I am because I'm really the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. I do some things for Nine Marks. Uh, I know that the annual budget is, I think, about $2 million. Uh, there are uh, five or ten employees um, Ryan Townsend runs the thing. Jonathan Lehman runs the editorial side. We have a website. It's in a number of languages, English, Spanish, Chinese, a couple more, maybe Portuguese. Um, we have conferences regularly now. Uh, Lord willing, this went Midwestern. will become a regular one, an annual one. The, we have the sort of granddaddy of those is the one at Southeastern, uh, which is going well. It's in its 10th or 11th year. Uh, we have uh, one at Cedarville which is about four or five years in. And then there are lots of smaller conferences around the country and around the world that uh, various Nine Marks folks do. Uh, I, don't, I don't really have a good idea on number of those. Good. Well, listen, let's hop into the meat of the conversation. We're talking today about preaching First Corinthians. Oh, what an exciting book. Well, it is. And, uh, and just the, the genesis of this is we began uh, a number of months ago periodically recording podcasts with people who are preachers or, you know, are theologians, professors who have a particular interest in or preach through or engage with a commentary on a particular book in the Bible. So wanting to, to kind of strengthen the hand of the guys listening to this podcast who tend to be those who are involved in the preaching and teaching ministry of the Word of God. And as God brings certain guests on, having you know, isolated episodes on preaching the gospel of John, as we did with Andreas Kostenberger, or now preaching 1 Corinthians, as we want to talk about with you. Yeah. 1 Corinthians came to mind for a number of reasons for me. First of all, you appeared of years ago, evidently preached 1 Corinthians, because a book came out. I forget the name of it. It was basically based on your sermons from 1 Corinthians. Yeah, 12-something, something, something, church yeah. space. I don't know. Something about first, something yeah. about church of court. Well, uh, anyway, and I remember, remember access, accessing 12 that. Twelve Challenges Churches Face. That's right. That's right. Great that's right. I remember accessing that book years ago, and, uh, and of, course the church, of course, the church at Corinth, uh, the most notorious church, perhaps, in the New Testament, and a lot to learn there. We see challenges there that we see 
um, in the 21st century church as well. Yeah. So yeah, so let's talk about this church. One of the things that I always like to point out is that good things were happening in that church. I think sometimes as preachers, particularly, we we know all the problems in Corinth. We familiarize our congregation with those when we're preaching them. But that first chapter, Paul is giving encouragement in the first nine verses to the Corinthians. And he's doing that not as a way to psychologically soften them up, I think, but because he understands this is God's work and he wants to acknowledge it. It's part of worshiping God. One of the things that I find as a pastor, I'm challenged by that, is to realize that even when my church might seem challenging or difficult, I can probably find examples of God's good work in that church. And it is a good and right part of my worship of God to acknowledge that, to thank Him, and even to publicly make that known so that the people in the church will understand and will be able to thank God for His work among us. Yeah, no, I think it's a very good point. We should be encouraged by the fact that Paul does find points to commend, aspects of the church to be thankful for. And uh, look, look, all of us know who ever served local church, there isn't a perfect church. Mm. Even churches that have a lot of the marks of a healthy church it's true. Um, still yeah. have many challenges. Yeah. So, so I guess, why don't you just maybe make some broad comments about the book, yeah. uh, just at the more, you know, the macro level, and then I want to kind of probe you with some more particular questions along yeah. the way. Well, First Corinthians is a fascinating book because of all of the relevant sections. Uh, for the pastor, I think especially chapters 11 through 14 are huge because it has to do with the corporate assembly. Chapter 15 is, of course, the great chapter on the resurrection. Uh, in chapters uh, 8, 9, and 10, Paul is laying himself out as an example of being willing to be uh, the object of wrong done in order for good. So he talks about giving up his own liberties, giving up his own rights so that uh, others would benefit. So that really is the rule that he uses to how to deal with the uh, the divisions that are going on that he talks about in chapters 1 to 3, 1 to 4. He deals specifically with sexual morality in 5, 6, 7. And then by chapter 8, he's talking about food sacrifice to idols, and he switches to this idea of I'm laying down my rights for the good of others, which is what he carries into the chapters 11 to 14 conversation about what you do at church. You want to do what will edify others. So the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, that's really just teasing out what Paul has said in chapters 9 and 10 is his own practice with his own rights. So how much emphasis should we place on the sequence of Paul expressing his concerns? And here's what I mean by that. Obviously, this church had some challenges, uh, the issue of disunity, uh, coming to the Lord's table inappropriately, litigation amongst church members, marriage and divorce, of course, the great sexual immorality issues there, and so forth. Um, as I talked through First Corinthians a number of years ago, I, I was struck by the fact that, that Paul makes a beeline in chapters 1 and 2 and bleeding into chapter 3 to talk about this issue of disunity in the church. And I guess if, if I'm Paul 2,000 years ago, or if I'm Jason today, and I got a church that's got these different issues we've talked about, me, instinctively, I would almost kind of put disunity, like rank that number, you know, concern number three or four or five or mm -hmm. six that I need to deal with. Am I making a beeline for these issues of sexual immorality? I'm making a beeline for these abuses of the Lord's table. I'm making a beeline of these abuses of the spiritual gifts. Um, but Paul doesn't. Why does he start, in your opinion, dealing with this issue of disunity? And, and, and is it right to think of that in some sense of a, a prioritization of the concerns? It is, and it's because he sees this division in the church much more theologically than I fear I would. I would tend to think more politically. But Paul immediately, when he talks about what Chloe's people have told him there in chapter 1, he gives the examples of, you know, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. But then he asks the question theologically in chapter 1, verse 13, is Christ divided? 
he immediately sees the theological implication because the local church is the body of Christ, that you can't have a division in the church without it reflecting falsely about Jesus Christ. So then as you begin to move more deeply into the book, preachers listening to this conversation, um, what should they be aware of? Are, are, there, are there any particular you know, potholes or any particular uh, entanglements there, any particular passages that are, that are most often presented in a confusing or unclear way? Well, I think some of the things he says on marriage in chapter 7, you can, to, what, what does it mean to be bound or unbound uh, when it comes to marriage and divorce, that, that confuses uh, the readers often. I think his overall points are very clear, though. I, I think First Corinthians, a bit like the book of Revelation, gets a, a bad reputation among preachers that, oh, there are so many troublesome texts. When actually, when I think you look at them in context, it's pretty clear there were troublesome problems, but I don't think the text itself is that unclear. And so, I guess, into to leaving us this question, then, why preach First Corinthians in the first place? Oh, it is a treasure trove for the local church. I mean, there, there is just so much in here that is of such use to us. So, for example, I, I said at first, you know, that chapters 11, 12, 13, 14 are so useful for the pastor. You just think of what he teaches in chapter 12 about spiritual gifts. You know, spiritual gifts are for the upbuilding of the church. Well, if you're a pastor, what do you want to see? The church upbuilt. So what are you going to do? You're going to see what God tells us in his word he's given the church. And these gifts are wonderful. And what do these gifts do? They all point out the unity of the church. Back to what he was saying in chapters 1 and 2. They only work together. Your finger is no good apart from your body. You know, your ears, your hands just doesn't work apart from your body. Well, that's Paul's argument here for how all of these different members of the church are best understood and working together. So so chapter 12, for example, is a great thing for you to teach through, if you do have division in your church, to try to teach through how people are given gifts exactly in order to bless each other. Very and, good. and so ultimately glorify God. So when you've, you've preached this book at least once, yeah. only once? Um, I've preached, I've done an overview sermon, uh, and then I have preached through it at least once. I've probably preached through parts of it more than that. Okay, so when you preach through through the book. Yeah. That was roughly how many years ago? Oh, that's a long time ago. Maybe 15 years ago, maybe more. So you've been at Capitol Hill roughly 10 years. 20, oh, then? Yeah, then. Uh, probably. Yeah, maybe a little less. So how many sermons did you do roughly on the book? Uh, I mean, not that many. I did I did like a chapter of a sermon. Okay. So a, a chapter sermon did yeah. over the course of whatever, 15, 16 weeks or so. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's how you worked through it. I guess for those listening, would you encourage a similar pace? Would you encourage well, them to— Well, I, I also taught through it on Wednesday night Bible study, and I, I did that over the space of about six years. And so now I'm still in 2 Corinthians. I'm in chapter 8. And I started 1 Corinthians in 2006, and it's 2018 when we're recording this. So I've been in First and Second Corinthians for 12 years on Wednesday night Bible studies. Okay. Now, that, 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 that's a deliberate pace. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Co- covering a verse or two a week. So if you were to just summarize some of the macro and, and then perhaps even micro themes of the book, what would they be? Well, I, the way I've, I, I did it in my overview sermon uh, is that God's people are to be holy, God's people are to be united, and God's people are to be loving. All those are clear in the book. You know, the, the united is clear in those first few chapters. You know, the holy is clear, clear in chapters 5, 6, 7. Uh, the loving is clear in chapters 11, 12, 13, 14. But then you ask the question, why? Why are we to be one, holy, loving? Because God is one. Because he is 
holy because he is loving. So God's people are to be one, holy, and loving because God is one, holy, and loving. So with, with those themes in mind, do you think the Church of Corinth gets a bad rap? I do. I think the Church of Corinth kind of deserves it, but I don't think it's a unique rap. So why, and, and I, I ask this question with a smile on my face, uh, but I'm always intrigued when I'm driving down a country road somewhere and I see a church Corinth name, Baptist Corinth Church. Baptist I know. Church. I know. Am I missing something, or should I be confounded as to why a church no, would like should, to name I, itself? Th- I think you should be confounded. I think it just shows an, an innocent love for the Bible, and you know, like you'll have Colossians Baptist Church or Colossi Baptist Church, or yeah, they just—it's a book in the Bible. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mark, let's pause just for a moment for a word of update from Midwestern Seminary. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry contact. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu mdiv today. All right, I'm back with Mark Dever talking about preaching 1 Corinthians. So back to, back to preaching through this book. Any key... Uh, textual emphases or textual anomalies or any, anything there to be particularly aware of? Uh, well, I would just tell you, you're going to want a good commentary for a few places in the book. And um, can you remember some you used? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you some, some oddities. I mean, yeah, the, the, the new one by Champa and Rosner in the New International Series, New International Greek Series is good. Okay. Gordon Fee taught me the book. I had a seminar with him at, at Gordon-Conwell, and he has a, you know, the— by now the old New International Commentary on it, though, though he was um, odd in the way he would suggest some things are, are not there textually when there's no textual evidence for them not being there just because he didn't like the limitations on women's ministry that he felt it was mm. pre- presented in the book. Uh, but I can't think of what I would call an outstanding commentary on 1 Corinthians. Uh, I think 1 Corinthians gives itself over to study easily enough but With I think, no offense to all the commentators of First Corinthians well, over the years. I'm sure they're all listening to our conversation right, right now. Right. But, <laughs> you know, I, I think if you can—I uh, mean, the guy I, I studied from at Duke as an undergrad was a First Corinthians expert. Um, he did the Interpreter's Bible commentary on, on First Corinthians, uh, James L. Price, Jr. He was a student of C.H. Dodds at Cambridge. So I've been around First Corinthians guys for a, a lot of my education, it seems like. But I think, I think it's a book that, while it looks intimidating at first, when you start studying it and you study it closely, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's not that hard. There will be a few things that you're going to have to puzzle out, but it's it's it makes a lot more sense than it may seem when you first look at it. Yeah, and, and you know, I want to just pick up on that for a moment. I, I found it eminently preachable, eminently teachable, because it, it naturally breaks itself into very preachable sections. Oh, yeah. One and, to four, five to nine. Yeah, and you have yeah. these parallel realities, Mark, that on the one hand, you're positioned, you're well positioned to deal with so many issues confronting the church in the 21st oh, century. Chapters five and six. So, I mean, you're, you're being oh, positioned goodness. to do that. Yeah. But at the same time, again, you have the overtones of encouragement because we, we know, of course, the church strengthens. We got Second Corinthians. We mm-hmm. know where this is going. Paul yeah. says words, if you've already mentioned, of encouragement about the church itself. So yeah. 
you get this parallel track of your position to really speak to a lot of things the church needs to hear, but you're doing it in a way without sounding week after week after week like a scold or yeah. being you know, a, a, well, a prophet. Chapter 15, at the beginning, you've got a great basis for confessions of faith. Mm-hmm. These things were first importance. Chapter 5, you have the clearest passage outside Matthew 18 on church discipline. Right. Chapter 6, you have the amazingly clear statements on sexuality. Right. Uh, you know, the Lord's Supper in chapter 11, the resurrection of the body later in chapter 15, love in chapter 13, edification is the rule for everything you do in the body in chapter 14, laying aside your own rights in chapter 9. I mean, it's ju- it's just a cornucopia of the, the wisdom and folly section there in chapters 1 and 2. Do, do you think that chapters 12 and 14 on the gifts and confusion surrounding those chapels, those chapters, maybe those discourage preachers from preaching through the book because they just don't know quite what to do with those chapters when they get to them? Uh, I'm sure that happens sometimes, but again, that, that would be a perfect example if you'll, if you'll stare at it carefully. I think a lot of things that may at first seem difficult, they, they just go away. So like, for example, if you hear the prayer language thing and people go to 1 Corinthians when they say, well, he who prays in, in, in a known tongue edifies everybody who prays in an unknown tongue just edifies himself. And they, they hear that presented as two different kinds, two different kinds of good prayer. Well, you read it in context, and it's clear it's not two different kinds of good prayer. Paul is slamming praying in tongues. He's saying, look, he specifically says, I want to do what edifies the body. So when he says, I edify myself, that's not like a positive, oh, here's another good channel. You could do self-edification. No, he doesn't want, he's not encouraging self-edification in that sense. Well, that's the kind of thing that becomes clear, not by reading a commentary, just by, by reading those verses in context, and you see what he's about. He's about that which edifies the church, like he says in 1426. So as you recall, when you preach to the book, um, and, and for that matter, the, the Wednesday night Bible study now, you're doing through it very deliberately. How, how, how um, has your congregation responded? Really well. I mean, the, the Corinthian letters are very relatable, to. You know, with Romans, it's, it's a glorious thing. I'm in Romans right now preaching. But Paul hadn't been to the church at Rome yet. So it doesn't feel as context-rich. The Corinthian church, he, he planted this church. You know, he sends Titus to check on him. You know, he's, he's concerned about this church. We, we can tell the outlines of some of the problems that were going on in the church. So it's a church that I think uh, members can kind of get their minds around and, and understand and relate to. It's a, it's a great book to preach through. Hmm. So preaching the book of 1 Corinthians, a couple other questions here. We've talked about some of the major you know, categories, the major sections. Any particular theological themes or theological topics that come up that, that maybe are just a bit below the surface? In other words, we know the gifts are there. Yeah. We know some of these bigger issues are there. But any other kind of subtext to be mindful of? Well, uh, you know, for me, uh, you know, of course I would say this. I would say the doctrine of the church is, is so clear because in chapter 5, when Paul is talking about the man who is living with uh, uh, his father's widow— right. He, he, interesting, he doesn't yell at the man directly. He doesn't yell at the elders of the church. He yells at the church. He's yelling at the congregation mm-hmm. for tolerating this man. So there's an implicit congregationalism in the kind of appeal that he makes. So if you're here and you think it's just the, the pastor's responsibility or the deacon's or the elder's responsibility, well, that's not the way Paul writes. Paul writes as if the congregation as a whole has a responsibility. And then I, if I can just cheat and go over into mm-hmm. 2 Corinthians for a moment, we don't know if this is the same man that's being referred to, but it's certainly some case that had happened where they had excommunicated someone. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive him and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Uh, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So it seems that this man or some man like him 
had repented of their sins and when they had excommunicated. And he refers to what they had done is the punishment by the majority is enough. So the majority, the plenum, not of the elders or the deacons, but actually the members, the church, they're the ones who had done this act of discipline, which fits exactly with what Jesus says in Matthew 18. So 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians really support that kind of image of the activity of the congregation that we first see in Jesus' words in Matthew 18. Right, being ultimately church discipline, not elder discipline exactly. or, or pastor discipline. Exactly, exactly. Well, Mark, the 20 minutes or so have flown by here, and, and just to land the plane here quickly, I, I guess uh, just to kind of look to you, a, a final word of exhortation to those listening, maybe on the fence, like should I or shouldn't I embark on a sermon series through First Corinthians? Give us your best sales pitch. Well, you should, because if you don't teach your church about divorce, the world will. If you don't teach your church about marriage, the world will. If you don't teach your church about unity and the glorious truth of the resurrection of the body, this world will claim that it's the ultimate thing, the final thing. And God gave us this book. His Spirit inspired it specifically so that we would understand and so that we who are preachers could share these great truths with our people. Amen. Brother, thank you for the conversation today. First Corinthians, I preached through it myself. I commend it to you, our listeners, and uh, may this conversation be a rich blessing and benefit to you. Mark, thank you for joining me on Preaching and Preachers. Thanks, Jason. Thank you for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, please visit my website, jasonkallen.com.